everyone. Welcome to the One Haas Podcast. I'm your host, Ellen, and today we're joined by our co-host, Sean Lee, and our guest, Trey Gwynn. Trey is an FP&A manager at Sandler Partners, the nation's fastest-growing distributor of connectivity, cloud, and IT services. He's also the CFO at Shortstop Management, an organization geared towards professional instruction in baseball and fitness. Trey graduated from the Hosco of Business in May of 2015. He was also both the VP of Human Resources and the president of the Haas Undergrad Black Business Association. Wow, Trey, very impressive and very excited to have you on. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited to be here. It's been a journey, I'll say that much. Yeah. Can you start by sharing with us your background and your origin story? Yeah, sure. I grew up in the Bay Area, grew up in Richmond, California, until middle school when I moved to El Sobrante, California. I went to Berkeley High School, so right down the street from Cal. And after Berkeley High School, I graduated in 2010 and went straight up to UC Berkeley. UC Berkeley was definitely my top choice. And part of it was because there's some family lineage there. My parents both went to UC Berkeley, and that's actually where they met. My aunt went to UC Berkeley, and my brother went to UC Berkeley. So wow. we continued the, and it, I didn't go just because they went. I, it was uh, heavily influenced, I'd say, but <laughs> I, I definitely chose to go to UC Berkeley because I thought, because of the prestige and the opportunities that I thought I would get from going to the school. And see, it's, it's only the, the number one public school in the <laughs> world. Oh, is that it? Oh, yeah. <laughs> no, yeah. It's, and it was right in, the ba- in my backyard. I'm really, I'm a really big family man. So I, I wanted to be around family as long as possible. And this going to Berkeley gave me the opportunity to not only get a great education, but be close to my family as I grew. Can you share a little bit more about your family? I know you have a very unique family. Yeah, we're a goofy bunch in privacy, but I guess to the to the rest of the world, like my, my dad, he played professional baseball. He was uh, drafted in the fifth round by the Oakland A's, and he had been drafted twice previously, but he didn't sign. My mom, actually, she played professional tennis, and she was top-ranked junior national junior player who she got all-conference honors at UC Berkeley. My brother, he played professional baseball and was drafted by um, the White Sox when he was a senior in high school and then he later continued playing for cal and got drafted in his junior year by the san diego padres and my sister i have a younger sister as well and she's a very accomplished athlete as well she played she was a two-sport athlete in college and she went to the academy of our san francisco she played both basketball and ran track while there she was also featured on the titan games as a tv show by nbc she's an accomplished artist and yeah, so now what we do, my dad is, of course, the CEO of Shortstop Management. My mom is vice president and general counsel of Shortstop Management. My brother, he is the chief operations officer. My sister manages our media. She also has her another job with Argonaut, where she's a lead content creator. So I guess that's a, just the family. But within ourselves, we're, yeah, like I said, we're pretty, we're to ourselves, but we're a pretty goofy bunch. And we, we try to... I don't know how else to describe us. <laughs> you just have to meet us to know. I think we, we are starting to get a taste of it just by uh, hearing you tell the story. Okay, good. Just, that's uh, good. Very jovial and upbeat family. Yeah. <laughs> Is it fun or do you sometimes get into arguments, stuff like that when it comes to the business? Uh, it's 
Sometimes. I, I think I'm probably the most challenging <laughs> to deal with because I will try to present all perspectives when it comes to whatever we're moving, trying to move forward with. And I will argue for those perspectives, regardless of whether I believe that is the right path to take. So it's, it's just play. <laughs> I am the, the constant devil's advocate. Uh, it, I guess it could be challenging at times, but I mean, at the end of the day, we'd we're still we're family, so we enjoy working with each other. I think more than working, it's easier to work with. I, I have to say, it's easier to work with my family than it is for uh, most other people. So, I I definitely enjoy it, and I'm sure I can speak for all of them when they when I say they enjoy working with within our family as well. That's a good thing. I mean, in the MBA, they teach us about red teaming, so uh, you should always have a red team. Yeah, a team that you know is the devil's advocate. <laughs> yeah, that is me. And I, That's a healthy thing. Yeah. How did you get into finance? Is that something you developed an interest during your time at Haas or have you always been wanting to do finance? So finance, I it kind of sucks to say. I just, I've been good at math for a long time. So finance <laughs> seems like the way to go. And I knew I have so many interests. I just didn't know, I guess, getting, getting into college. I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do. So what I decided was, I'm just going to take the path where I think I can make a lot of money so I can fund my interests. And <laughs> that is kind of how it came to be. And I, I, I love math. I love numbers more than anything. So I was like, okay, this is a path where I can not only have the opportunity to make money to fund my interests, but also something that I'm good at and could be useful in any industry. So I wanted to, not knowing what I wanted to do at that time, I was like, how can, what can I go into that will allow me to be not only flexible with, with any potential jobs, do something that I'm good at and potentially make, make a living out of. And I don't know, just be once I, I guess that's it. <laughs> yeah, I guess that's it. So that, I wouldn't say there was like a passion for finance that drove me towards the Haas Business School. I would just say I'm good at it, and I, I did, I do like numbers more than anything, especially growing up. And puzzles are, I love puzzles. So you can ask anyone in my family. I've been doing puzzles since I was about two years old. And what kind of puzzles? <laughs> the very generic 1,000, 2,000 piece puzzles that you put on the table. So, got it, got it, okay. <laughs> yeah, the, yeah. So I've actually done quite a few of those in quarantine. During so, quarantine. Yes, I was yeah. about to say. Yeah. And anyone in my family, it's like I used to, while my brother was going to play outside, this is kind of like an odd thing, but I would stay inside. It's like, I have to finish this puzzle first and then I'll go play outside. <laughs> so, <laughs> That's so funny. Did you have any ex early exposure to finance to, to even think down that path? I guess unknowingly, it's, I think I've always had a business mind or like a finance mind. I, this is an interesting story. So when I was in uh, kindergarten, I had a tolerance for sour candy or just like a sour taste. So I, and there was also this ice cream truck that used to come by the kindergarten every single day. And I always wanted the snowstorm. In my opinion, it was the best ice cream available in the upper of the ice cream truck. And I really wanted it. And my dad would only give me a dollar. He was like, you can have this dollar for ice cream. That's all you have to spend for the day. The snowstorm was $1.50. So I couldn't afford that. And I was like, man, how am I going to get the snowstorm? And so what I used to do was there were sour warheads back when sour warheads were pretty huge when I was in kindergarten. Mm. And since I had a tolerance, I used to bet kids. I was like, I bet I can take three warheads or however many warheads at once and not make a face. And I would bet quarters. 
So I would do that, and, they, and I, it just went around the school. I made money to get my snowstorm. So I only had to do it twice because I knew, only needed 50 cents. But that was my, I guess, my side hustle, so to speak, <laughs> to get a snowstorm afterwards. So that was my early introduction to finance, I, I guess, <laughs> uh, awesome. when I was a lot younger. But other than that, my grandmother was really big in real estate. My parents, my dad's been a business owner forever. And my mom, she's she was a practicing lawyer. So being around all the conversations that they've had, especially around short-stop management, have prepared me for not only finance, but all parts of being an entrepreneur came from that. That's awesome. Are there some defining moments that you think have made a lot of impact to your life and your career thus far? Yes, actually. Yeah. A lot of them have been the the failures that I've had. I think when I was a freshman at Berkeley, there was an incident that put me, I guess you could say, a slight depression, so to speak. I wasn't actually depressed, but it was more of the event had shifted my focus. It threw me off and it soured me on on just student life at Berkeley. And I won't go into that. It was a racial episode. And what happened was I saw my, my GPA took a huge dive. And it was hard to get back into it. In that moment, seeing that failure, then having to, okay, if I want to get into the business school, I really have to kick it into gear. That trial period of having to work extremely hard to get my GPA competitive definitely set a precedent later on when I got into the workforce and started working. So this is how hard I should be working all time. The takeaway there is more, this is how hard I can work. This is how hard I should be working because I have the ability to do so. Also, there have been defining moments in, the, in a lot of areas, but I guess with academics, that is the biggest one. When it comes to sports, I actually played sports as well in high school. I played basketball and baseball, but I stopped playing both sports. I stopped playing baseball after my senior year of high school. I stopped playing basketball after my junior year. And that was a defining moment just because it was challenging the family norm. Everyone in my family is an athlete and pursued athletics post high school. And I was the first one to stop playing sports and just, just pursue like an academic career. So challenging that status quo, so to speak, was tough at first. But when I started going throughout my career and actually getting involved in different things like clubs, try more sports, try more activities, it really made me more well-rounded. One of the things I love doing is trying a bunch of new things. I have a keyboard, I bought a saxophone, I have a guitar. I just bought a drum set about two weeks ago. I was able to get into music. <laughs> One of the things that I really do love, I've also tried a majority of the sports that are out there, more of the popular sports. I was able to try a lot of those like hockey. I have hockey pads. I have roller skates, the quad skates, also inline skates, tennis rackets, golf club. Like you could, I can continue on. They're all in my trunk right now because I want to be ready at any moment to be able to play. But it's just be, having the time to try all of these um, different things just made me more willing to take leaps of faith or leaps in, in unseen territories. And it's one of those things that's really challenging for me because I am a person that likes stability and likes to be in a certain, that used to like stability, I guess now, but now I'm less averse to change. And I think that is for the better because the changes in my life have been groundbreaking and have added to my persona.
It's, it's interesting to hear your story because one of the things that you want to discuss in our pre-interview conversation was around the topic of racial representation, right? labels and stereotypes, and how one of your pet peeves at Berkeley was being perceived as an athlete. Can you speak a little bit to that? Yeah, definitely. And it, was, it, it wasn't only at Berkeley. It happened quite a bit. And I can't blame every person for actually just giving me that label because I did dress in athletic clothing. Sometimes I wouldn't. But it seemed like without a doubt, that's what I had to be. I had to be an athlete. Every person right. would ask me, what sport did I play? And even outside of Berkeley, when I was walking around like airports, and if I had the Cal t-shirt on, it was like, okay, what sport do you play? I can't just go to Cal. And part of that is because I think LeBron James is one of, one of the proponents of this is just being more than an athlete. I want people to know that black males or black people in general can be more than an athlete and you shouldn't just stereotype that person as like, oh, the only reason you're here is because you're an athlete. And that's the, that's the lane I go down. I'm not sure if that's exactly what people are thinking, but it is a, it's a stigma that is, I believe it's unfair, but it's, and I can't blame the person because that's what's perpetuated in the media day to day. That's what we see even in the black community. We see representation of ourselves as entertainers, whether it be in athletics or whether it be in music, et cetera. That's a predominant black figure that you see at this point. And it's a predominant black, black figure, not only for myself being part of the black community, but more like everyone else. So why wouldn't you assume? And, I, and it's hard to blame and it's hard to make, I guess, expect people to say, maybe I should think this person is more <laughs> than just an athlete. So, right. Um, yeah. But it is limiting. Yeah, it I mean, is. That, I think that's what you're getting at. And, yeah. And I see that too because it limits the scope of what you as an individual may consider as possible, but what, like, what routes are a possibility towards, towards success. Yeah. The problem when I was in college, and this is the biggest problem I had with it, is because the perception on campus was that athletes didn't have the same intellectual capacity as the students on campus. Mm. And if that perception didn't exist, it wouldn't be as big of a problem. But because people would assume I'm an athlete, that, that assumption carried over into my intelligence. And I did not think that was fair. Yeah. When you say that, it's very prevalent, actually, in, in college sports as a whole. And mm -hmm. you're absolutely correct. These stereotypes are limiting and damaging uh and, and there's they just really don't help anybody <laughs> yeah yeah and i think it's experienced across the board i think there are a lot of people that experience this there's a burden of representation being at cal yeah. there were only when i was there i think it was like two to three percent black and then when i was in haas i can count on my hands how many black uh, students were there not not to mention black male students i think i was like one of maybe less than five if i were to fit into one of the stereotypes any of the stereotypes then it was like, oh, then you're normal. But <laughs> if I'm succeeding in academics, I'm an anomaly. And I want to change yeah. that. I want to change that, in, that impression or that perspective that I was an anomaly. It was so tough. And I'm sure others can attest to this as well, walking around campus, feeling like if I make a misstep, then I'm just like, oh, you're you're par for the course. You're, you're one of the black students that fits into what I've come to know because of what's been perpetuated by the media. And I don't know how that is for like other races of people, but it's, yeah. It's, it's funny you say that because I was just thinking it's there, but it's not as deeply ingrained, right? Like mm -hmm. me growing up as an Asian kid, it was always like, like either going to be a doctor or a lawyer. And, and you have to be good the, at math. Yeah, you have to be good at math. <laughs> and that was like the Asian pipe dream. But it never 
really it, it wasn't so deeply ingrained in society that that it felt too limiting at least not for me granted my wife's a doctor and, and her brother's a pharmacist <laughs> but that aside it's it wasn't limiting in a way to think that like you couldn't succeed in any other way i think that's really what's so just destructive about this type of mindset this type of bias and stereotype in, in a way like this type of anti-blackness right is that it really just puts people into a bucket and say look this is the only path for success for you we don't believe that you can succeed in any other way that's what it's implying right yeah i guess about like the like where being an anomaly or like I've had this conversation with with friends, multiple races and even like Asian friends that say, said the same thing as you. It's like I'm expected to be a doctor or a lawyer and you're not an anomaly if you're not pursuing <laughs> those right. types of professions. If you look at doctor or lawyer, that's seen as successful. If you're not a doctor or lawyer, <laughs> if you're maybe a clerk at a grocery store, that would be seen as more unsuccessful than a doctor or a lawyer. So being right. like, I'm just going to compare Asian community and black community is when if you're unsuccessful, an unsuccessful Asian is seen as the anomaly. A successful black is seen as the anomaly. So it's, it's a, I just want to tear, I, I hope to tear down that construct that makes it so that the unsuccessful black is the norm. So it's a, it's, it's tough. It's tough to do. And it's something that's just been perpetuated by media for a long period of time so that those that haven't had many encounters with black people already have this impression that of an entire race of people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's definitely going to be a journey. How have you in the past, perhaps with the Haas undergrad Black Business Association or even now, how have you try to address or break down some of these stereotypes it's just being myself really um trying to be more present encouraging i fully understand that i may be seen as an anomaly in the black community people have told me i am an anomaly and if i can continue to be myself instead of conforming sometimes it's within my own race they'll still call me whitewashed or and that was more when i was in high school more than now but i have to continue to do this because i have to make this like a possibility this cannot be it's not this seeing barack obama as a as our president we need to see these possibilities within our community and make it so that it's not just a one-off it is a norm so yeah. just being present and being my being unapologetically me so to speak is the way to show versatility within the black community and show that you can be confident in the interests that you have. You can pursue whatever you want to pursue and you will expand the reach of all black people that come after you. You could, that one kid that it sees this uh, black professional that really loves anime or that plays the drums or that will play tennis, like it's seeing Venus and Serena Williams, it's, you can do that as well. You don't have to conform to the standards that have been set for you. So it's just like, filling that lane so that you can encourage others after you to fill those lanes as well. That's a powerful message. Thanks for sharing that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no problem. Let's switch gears a little bit okay. into your just your career. Okay. Can you share with us your career path so far out of Haas and 
what you have envisioned for yourself. Yeah, I guess my original intention, the profession I wanted to go into, I was actually looking at the big four accounting firms post-grad. And I was talking to a recruiter from Deloitte and actually my junior or senior year, they changed the requirement for accounting units. And I was like, man, I'm already, I think it was my senior year, I'm already, I'm going to graduate and I need 30 more units of accounting. And I kind of just want to graduate right now. (laughs) I just just want to get along. So I was discussing things with the recruiter and seeing if there's a path to like to start and also take classes. And as I was doing that, one of my uncle's best friends through high school and college reached out to me. His name's Alan Sandler. So he's the owner of Sandler Partners. And he was wondering like, oh, what do, what do I plan to do after work, after school, after after I graduate? And I was like, I don't know, I'm looking at accounting firms and Deloitte in particular, but I'm not really sure at this point. And so he said, why don't you come intern with me, see how you like it. And if you really like it, then you can continue on. And He gave me a choice and I was like, okay. And he set up an interview with the director of finance at the time and went from there. I started as a commissions assurance specialist. And after two years, I got promoted to commissions uh, assurance man or actually senior commissions assurance specialist. About six months after that, got promoted to commissions assurance supervisor. Another six months went by, then we kept expanding, and then I became the commission's assurance manager. So I managed the commission's department. And then actually back in January or December, or just the beginning of this year, I moved into a new role, and, and this role is the financial planning and analysis manager. So this is a new team within the company focused on looking at trends and, I guess, looking at trends and then empowering upper management to make decisions based on those trends. There's a lot of movement in the last five years or so. Yeah. What do you have envisioned for yourself in as moving forward? Do you see yourself staying in FP&A or? I do. It's a, at this point in my career, I really enjoy what I'm doing. I've haven't like trained for data analysis, but I've been with the company for a while. I think I do have a knack for like strategy and data analysis, identifying trends. And I do enjoy the variety of different projects that come up. And then managing, I, I manage a one person team, but just managing people, it gives a new look and every day is different. And I need that for my personality. The different pro- the varied projects that come on my plate and the dealing with or I guess managing a team definitely gives me a, a wide variety of a difference day to day that keeps me engaged. So at this point, I'm happy, happy being the uh, FP&A manager and also doing other things on the side. Like I said, uh, CFO of Shortstop Management LLC and then working to grow this business as well. It's interesting because those two roles are not too dissimilar. I mean, FP&A typically moves into to the CFO position. For any listeners that may be just unaware of what you know an FP&A or a um, financial planning analysis job entails, can you share a little bit about what your job is like? Yeah, it's mostly report. I mean, heavy Excel, heavy reporting. Kind of like described before, really, we're just taking all of the data within our systems and outside and data, all the data we can gather and trying to identify trends with that data. And once we identify the trends, we're supposed to put it into a very like easily digestible format for upper management so that they can make decisions to take the company in whatever direction they please. Of course, we want to provide our own opinion in terms of what the data says. And this data can come from anywhere. In, my, in our space, in the uh, telecom space, 
we're looking at, it can be something as simple as how long do customers stay on average with this particular provider? If we know how long customers stay for this particular provider of service or for this particular product, then maybe there should be a push in that direction in terms of we should be marketing this product more heavily because we're seeing that these products are sticky. Or if there are new products that come, like new products come all the time. If we see heavy growth in that product or heavy demand for that particular product, we say, okay, we should start uh, shifting some of our marketing focus towards this product because this is the future. And we're seeing this with the numbers. We're the team that substantiates the like anecdotal information or something that our sales teams may experience day to day and just don't have the backing data to prove. Who comes up with what qualitative or quantitative data you guys should look at or should collect? Is that something your team figures out or is that something that you guys maybe figure out in conjunction with other departments? Definitely in conjunction with other departments, but mostly it'll either come from our, our director of finance. We'll have a, our director of finance, our COO, or director from the CEO. They'll have projects for us to research. And we're also expected to come up with our own projects, or our own topics or places, fields KPIs. of research. Yeah, KPIs that we want to look into. And of course, we'll do a pitch beforehand before we go down that road because we don't want to spend time researching something that may not be seem fruitful across the board, but it's a joint effort. So we'll try to come up with as much as we can and see what's useful for the company at whatever point in time, but we'll receive demands from other parts of the company as well. Awesome. awesome. Are there skills or traits that you think are increasingly valuable as you move up in an organization? You're promoted a couple of times obviously now managing someone else, what has changed or what do you think is, is going to be really important? If I had to break it down into three main skills or three main focuses, I think the first one would be, of course, producing high quality work, but uh, producing that quality work consistently. I think as a manager and looking at employees looking to grow, consistency is one of the things that you can that you like to see in an employee. It, uh, it makes that employee seem reliable. Um, and dependable. And a manager is someone that needs to be dependable. And I think that was something that caught the eye of my manager while I was was growing with the company because they didn't have to worry about me getting my work done. But you want to consistently produce high quality work because, of course, that is what uh, a manager is expected to do. Right. I think number two would just be to be engaged or try to be engaged at all times. Sometimes it's hard to remain engaged because motivation dips in and out. And part of that is from comes from your manager to help you stay motivated. But if you set goals for yourself and if one of your goals is to move up, you should keep that in the back of your mind or write that down. Whatever you have to do to keep that goal in mind so that you can remain engaged. Because the next step, step after engagement is establishing a solid foundation of the work that you're doing and being able to innovate within that company because you want to make sure that you can set yourself apart from your peers. Like everyone's going to be trying to produce high quality work and it's really important, but the ability to innovate and bring something new to the table will set you apart and help you establish yourself from the rest. And then the last one is a quality that I think is just really important in general. And that's just plain old hard work. (laughs) You have to be a hard worker if you want to grow. The, the more, the higher you get in a company, the more work there is and the more difficult choices you'll have to make. The sooner you can develop a mentality that you'll uh, be working hard and you, you, you have to put in the work to reap the benefits, the better. So, so if I had to break it down, those would be the three main focus areas to be able to grow in a company. Yeah, 
Yeah, my final question before we wrap up with Ellen's lightning round questions is, I'm curious, regarding the instruments that you mentioned earlier, what got you into music? What's getting into the music? And have you always played growing up? Yeah, I played piano for about three three years. But three or four years, I took in, uh, took lessons prior to middle school. And I really enjoyed it at that point. I had a knack for it. It, it was until I moved into, I started playing sports that I actually gave up piano. And now that I think about it, it's, like, it's one of those things like, man, I wish I would have continued playing piano because <laughs> I, I look back and, and my teacher was, my, my mom tells me every now and again, he's like, yeah, your teacher, she was so sad when you stopped because she thought you had so much potential. And I think, I guess going bef- even before piano lessons, I, my dad listened to so much music growing up. There was always music going on around the house and he was playing a, mostly R&B. I listened to a lot of Tony Braxton and, and Blackstreet <laughs> back in the day, Beyonce, of course. And it's just, it got that musical gene going at a younger age. Yeah, piano for sure. And then there was something, my teacher called it perfect pitch. She said I had a perfect pitch ear when going because I used to play, but I always asked her, can you play the song first? before I start. <laughs> I didn't know what why I was doing that. It's just like hearing the sound hearing the song go before hearing her play the song made it so much easier for me to play. So mm-hmm. I I would ask her, "Here, play the song." And then I'll try after you. And she played it and I would just put my hands in the place where she started and I start playing the song. <laughs> it's interesting because I I played for a few years, uh, not as long as I like as I probably should have to develop this passion for music but i think after i stopped playing sports it seemed like the thing i wanted to go back and do it, i wanted to have some type of creative outlet i'm definitely wired to be more creative than anything and it's interesting because i am in finance and i do deal with numbers or things that are mostly would be are perceived as less creative but i don't know i think that's where maybe some of the success comes from it's uh they say when you're not in your comfort zone that's where you are most creative. And I think that just having that outlet piano helped me a ton. And oh, one more thing I want to add too. whenever I was going through a rough patch, remember, maybe I got a bad grade. Like when I was in high school, I never wanted to miss any problem on any test or homework. If if I missed a couple problems on that or in that stint in my freshman year where I did pretty poorly in classes, I would always go to the piano to be like to console or to be, be a release and get things out. It's, that was my comfort zone. I, could, I would play anything. It didn't matter what it was. I can just press the keys and I would feel a lot better. <laughs> something it's about amazing. hearing sounds that just helped, I don't know, put my mind at ease. Yeah. Also, music music is soulful. Yeah. It's like, it's therapy and music therapy. Yeah, it's, it's real. real. Yeah. <laughs> I don't even see my piano here. Oh, yeah. Oh, great. <laughs> what? See, it's, I don't know if, if you uh, use it for therapy as well, but I, I definitely <laughs> do. <laughs> I, I do. I grew up playing piano and I actually do use it for therapy nowadays. It's just a way to release and de-stress and just focus on something else. It's almost like a form of meditation because you kind of have to focus on music, right? When you're playing, mm-hmm. it's not like you can just play and think about everything else that's wrong with the world. And in a way, it's actually really good for the soul. And I, I bring all this up too because you're like a renaissance man, right? You're able to play all these different sports, even though they're different in nature, but also the fact that you mentioned you're picking up keyboard, saxophone, saxophone drums. And it's one of these things that there's like this myth that I feel like people believe that they can only be good at so many things in life. 
But I'm just like, if you just, I know they, they supposedly debunked the 10,000 hour rule, the 10 year rule. Mm-hmm. If you spend 10 years on something, you're inevitably going to get good at it. And for me, I'm thinking like, dude, I have a lot of 10 year spans in my life. I can become an expert in a lot, quite of, a lot of things. right? <laughs> and so, I mean, when you think about Da Vinci, Leonardo Da Vinci's life, he was a astronomer, an artist, right? It's just, I, I can't even list off all the things that he was. But he he was a lot of things. He was an inventor. He was uh, he dissected people and and humans, and that also contributed to his art. As I see what you're talking about, everything else that you're doing, they ultimately do kind of blend into each other and help make you more skilled in other areas. I'd have to agree with that wholeheartedly. It's uh, I think picking up instruments has been. I think the way that I've take, I've approached each instrument has help me approach other instruments. Like I just got my drum set. And what I do is I have this Sonos move, which is amazing. I'll blast a song and all I'll do is try to replicate what's going on. I'll, I'll listen to the drums and yeah. I'll just play and I'll get lost in it. And that's kind of how I approach everything else. Like guitar, I'll just, I'll strum. I, I don't need, I don't go through the tutorials and I'll start doing that eventually. But my first uh, inclination is to just pick up the instrument in try to make my own sounds and see what comes out of that. It's just having a blank canvas and trying to make something out of nothing. It's just, there's something about the growth period that I just, I love and, and having the, the sandbox to do it. So. That's cool. It's all about the focus. Yeah. Yeah. That's uh, been in, instilled in me from a young age. I, I have the best parents in the world. They've they never pushed me into doing anything, and I think that's why I'm able to just try a bunch of new things. And all of the, all they've preached is whatever you do, just do it with to the best of your ability, and we'll be there to support you. I had a great upbringing. I'll say that much. That's awesome. Should we wrap up with our lightning round of questions? Yeah, let's do Are it. You ready? All right, lightning round. Let's see <laughs> see how it's right. it like a it's like a game. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> You briefly mentioned this, but what are you doing to keep yourself sane during this time? So a little bit of everything, <laughs> aside from trying like ran, playing instruments. I definitely I work out often. I think that's one thing that's keeping me sane. I play quite a, a lot of video games, different types of games. Uh, whether that be I just finished The Last of Us Part Two kind of pretty recently, and that was an amazing game. Love it pretty divisive but it's all right <laughs> um other than that i just finished i skate i did some skating yesterday some roller skating i don't know it's been and then spending some time like i've even though i've been in quarantine and i don't live with my parents we've seen each other pretty much every day so just having that time for family and we've only seen each other but for the most part we've seen each other so it's just having time with family and catching up for lost time because i was away for about five years and i didn't miss things in in my brother sister parents lives and during that time so just enjoying Mm -hmm. that because you never know how especially with quarantine and COVID, you never know how long you have or how long anyone else has so you want to make the most of those encounters yeah now now it's a good time to catch up with family and friends, certainly. Mm-hmm. And what content are you consuming right now? It could be books or shows, movies. Oh, okay. Yeah, so all the above. When it comes to shows, I actually really like Lovecraft Country on HBO. HBO puts out some great content. 
And I want to I want to start Raised by Wolves on there pretty soon. Pretty late to All American season two, but I'm watching that right now as well. When it comes to books, I actually have a few books, some that I'm reading for work that are really great. If you're looking for any leadership focused books, it's um, one of them's called The Culture Code uh, by Daniel Coyle. It's uh, the secrets of highly successful groups. That one's were a li- really good one. That's helped my leadership skills. They're giving me mm-hmm. more insight into how to be an effective leader. And another one that I'm going to start now is The Power of a Positive No. And this is by William Burry. So I, I haven't started that one yet. And then I have a more of a book for pleasure. It's called What Doesn't Kill You Makes You Blacker by Damon Young. Uh, it's, uh, and that book, it's like a, a few memoirs of his life. And that book is amazing. I love it. It's, his writing style is just it's very comedic and I, I don't know. And I can definitely resonate with a lot of the topics that he's discussed and a lot of his experiences. So uh, that is a good one. And then when it comes to music, I listen to pretty much every genre. <laughs> this seems like the theme, but my I think my two top music genres are R&B and country. But of course, I, I'll listen to alternative, EDM. I just started getting into uh, metalcore a little bit. Just like I've been introduced by one of my coworkers and that's been great. But yeah, rap, electronic, but music has definitely been huge as well. So, And you obviously are juggling between two different roles. What is your best productivity hack? This is a tough question because I'm always thinking, what am I not doing right now? What am I? <laughs> so it's like, what? What if I'm not doing anything at the moment? If I'm, if there are times where there is a lull, let's say I'm, I'm working and I finish my work day for Sandler Partners, there's usually a time where I want to wind down and maybe just get some water or something. But then I'm thinking, while I'm drinking water, I could be doing something else right now. <laughs> you know what? I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go check my email, or I'm, I'm gonna go play the guitar. Or I'm gonna. I'm gonna do. St- I, I constantly think of what can I be doing right now that right. where whereas I I would have just laid down on the couch and maybe watched some shows anything that would would have uh, and even watching television it's almost like every and this might sound kind of weird but it's almost like every thing that I'm engaged with every whether it be work whether it be anything extracurricular hobbies etc everything has a bar. And it's almost like, okay, here we go with my analogies, but it's almost like in Pokemon, you have different <laughs> attributes. It's, it's almost like, all right, I need to level up this area of my life. So let me jump in that. And so I can get up and I always love the balance cares kind of characters and video games. So I was like, yeah. let me level up. This part seems a little deficient. So let me jump into that next. And then let me just keep trying to get to the bar. And then there's always this point where I feel like I've, jump to the next tier and i'm like okay yeah. so let me get everything else to that next tier that's kind of how i think about it that's a very interesting perspective because although it may sound in in one sense like you're lacking focus but for me it sounds like you're keeping a good balance across different areas of your life and when a lot of people tout a work-life balance that's only two work and life what well, i mean life they make it sound like it's only two-dimensional, but <laughs> life is like infinitely dimensional within that you have your physical activity, you have your creative pursuits and so on and so forth. And then entertainment, obviously, and then education or learning, continue education. So it sounds like you have figured out a good system and a good framework to keep up with all these aspects of your life and really keep a good balance. And I think that ultimately leads to a happier 
more fulfilled you? <laughs> yeah, it gets tough because I definitely lean towards spontaneity, but I realized, okay, there is a bucket that's not filled and that is the planning bucket. Like I need to plan yeah. out my day so maybe I can get th- more things accomplished. Yeah, I mean, the, the levels extend to so many things in my mind and it's been helpful, especially recently. And I rarely have moments where I just sit down and don't do anything. <laughs> so, that's yeah. great. That's good. Got to maximize every minute. Yeah. yeah. One thing it deters me from doing is like re-engaging with things that I've already done. Like, like for example, if I've already seen a movie, I won't want to go back and watch that movie unless it was just something or if that's something I missed or it was just really like blew me out the water because it's like, I've already seen that. I need to see another movie that I haven't seen so I can experience mm-hmm. everything. It's, it's almost like seeing another movie gives me more points towards where, where I want to be <laughs> than seeing the same movie again. <laughs> Awesome. Uh, I guess the last question, what is your favorite thing about Haas or Berkeley? I think about this for a second. I like that the challenge was probably the thing I liked the most. I love to be challenged. And along with the challenge, I think I've gone on campuses, a few other campuses, and the difference is how people approach, or how the students were approaching topics or approaching things. There's more of a free speech mentality at Berkeley than there are at some other schools. And people are uh, encouraged to express themselves in a lot of different ways. It was cool to be a part of that type of environment, but also be challenged to the point where it's, okay, how, how far can you go here? Once you got into Haas, it got a lot easier. But like going up to Haas, it was like, oh man, I, I really have to be on top of things. But even within Haas, being amongst so many brilliant minds was a challenge in itself. And you always, you always wanted to make yourself kind of like, I always wanted to make myself confident or make sure I was confident in that area or make sure I was like closing in on the best <laughs> if I could. But I knew there, there's so many brilliant minds and just getting and being around that environment and getting all these different perspectives because people were more expressive, just made it more a, it gave you a holistic perspective on things more than just school. Although there wasn't the, the diversity in Haas wasn't like, or at Berkeley, it wasn't crazy diverse there. there but you're able to get diverse opinions because people weren't sh- scared to share opinions that would challenge like norms, how we started this conversation and challenge what you would have, what you would expect from some people. So I'd have to say that the challenge and the expressiveness of the students that were there. Well, thank you, Trey, for being our guest today. It was a pleasure. Yeah, thank you for having me. This was great. This was great. Thanks, Trey. <laughs> thank you for listening to this episode of the One Haas Podcast, the Undergrad Series. If you like our content, please like and subscribe to our channel and give us a review. You can also check out more episodes and hear from past and current Haas students on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and on onehaas.org. Until next time, go Bears! Thank you.